Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. He just held femininity and queerness and all of that with such strength that it made all of us around him who were all struggling to come out or to feel okay being different or to feel okay liking Bowie. Back then, if you said you liked Bowie, people would go, you're puff. And being on heroin and crack cocaine, scoring stuff like that on the streets, that wasn't hard for me at all. I mean, the hardness was not being able to be a poet. I'm not just saying it because I'm on it. It's been one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've listened to. My guest today is author Juno Roach. Juno was shortlisted for the Polari Prize in 2021 for her book, Trans Power. Her new book, A Working Class Family Ages Badly, is out now. Hello, Juno, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm so pleased that you were able to make this. This podcast is about people's heroes, heroines, role models, people they've looked up to, and there have been various themes emerging. Joelle Taylor, in the very first episode, talked about being a survivor of sexual abuse and of violence. Fat Tony talked about being a survivor of drug addiction and also a late AIDS diagnosis where he was rushed into hospital. You're a survivor in many different ways. Could we talk just a little bit about that before we kick off? Firstly, thank you for inviting me on here. I've loved listening to the other episodes. I've been thinking a lot about this podcast and about who I would consider to be as kind of heroic people. One of the things that people say about people that are long-term survivors with HIV is that they're self-stigmatizing, which is this kind of blame thing that we do on people that are long-term survivors. We go, oh, you've ingested the, the stigma. Like anyone could not ingest the stigma. Like if you're someone that sat on a tube in the late 80s or early 90s and you were positive and you, you read a headline opposite you that said, ship them off and shoot them, it's kind of difficult to come back from that point. But what I do think that my life has enabled me to do is to become kind of very adept at managing a set of feelings that comes up in me that are about survival, feelings about loss, feelings about fear, feelings of shame. I was a child of a violent parent and also a parent who you know, was on self-medicated. So I imagined that I would grow up to become a violent addict. We say that to children, we say, oh, you're just like your so-and-so you are, or that one's going to be just like them. And in a way, I kind of grew up with that. You know, when I went through school, a lot of the time people would say, oh, you're one of the roaches, you know, you're going to be trouble, you're going to be this, that, and the other. So I constantly fought trying to find space to not inhabit just survival and I think a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today is that is that kind of idea of how do I do more than survive how do I live a beautiful life 
Am I worthy of living a beautiful life? If you're born into that kind of survival mode, you do you find it easy to become an addict. Being on heroin and crack cocaine, scoring stuff like that on the streets, that wasn't hard for me at all. I mean, the hardness was not being able to be a poet. I became an eminent risk taker. I became really, really good at, at taking risks. Louise Beach, who is another author who we've interviewed on the podcast, she talked about a very, very abusive dangerous childhood and being a survivor and she said something very interesting which was that her parents gave her certain gifts and they gave her a certain ability and creativity but then she needed them in order to survive her parents yeah I can really relate to that I mean I think that you know if you're born into a house and that house is a violent house Everything we think or we write or we read in children's books about a home is turned on its head. But also, I love the people in that house, yeah. even if they're violent, because they're the only people I have. And also you feel like, oh, every home must be like this. To survive it, you go, well, maybe all dads are violent and maybe all men are then. My first set of relationships were all with people that were violent. And if they weren't violent, I mean, I've owned this, so I'm not saying anything. You know, I feel like I would push and push and push and push and push until I got to a situation where there was violence, because then I understood that. It was like a language of, oh, they hit me, and then they apologise, and then we say love. We use the word love, because that's how I knew the word love, in the context of, of coming after violence. That becomes your normal. And when you mentioned children's books there, Louise made a very good comment because I was talking about my childhood and I had a very difficult childhood thanks to my father. And she said, we tell kids about the big bad wolf, but what if the big bad wolf is inside the house? I grew to love books, which in my family was like a real oddity. Education and school wasn't a thing in my house. It just wasn't a quality. The qualities were fighting and getting away with it. I worked out that at school, if I did really well, I could get a book token, then once a week, a book trolley would come out and I could pick a book from the book trolley. And I would pick books in which I could escape. The Secret Garden, The Borrowers, those kind of books in which you could go to a different land. So I would sit in amongst all this palaver and read a book and just think, it's okay, because I think if I think hard enough, I can get under the floorboards, or I can get on a leaf and I can float away. In a way, if you look at my life, I mean, I now live in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. I was aiming for this point from the get-go to escape to the mountains and live a completely different life. I think it's really difficult for people that aren't born into a home in which the caregivers can't give care. My family history is that they can't give care because they weren't given care. My mum was my saviour and she certainly encouraged me to read. I remember reading The Magic Faraway Tree and like you, imagining myself flying out of the window and going somewhere else and escaping. Mothers has been another theme that's actually come up quite a lot in this podcast because David McCalmont, Susie Boyd, Fat Tony all talked about the importance of their mothers. And in your book, your relationship with your mother is a thread sort of running through the book. You mentioned then that you're living in the mountains in Spain, and that was partly a decision that came about because of your mum. I wanted her to have a, a, a kind of lovely retirement. I wanted her to be happy. I wanted her to, you know, she loves having a fag and being in the sun. I didn't know Spain before I bought a house. I don't think I'd ever been to Spain. I think when I was very young, we went somewhere 
on one of the Balearic Islands, but I don't think I had ever been to Spain. In fact, I hadn't been to Spain. My mum loved this part of Spain because she'd come to this part of Spain many years ago with a boyfriend of hers and I had a lovely time. And so she hadn't been well, so I brought her back here. We came back here to, to stay here for a week and I thought I'm going to buy a house here. This is where I get to after all those years of wanting to climb under floorboards and, and climb on leaves and float down rivers. But also this is where it would be, make her really happy. My mum understood that we had a tough time as kids and she's done everything that she could possibly do to become a better mother over the years. And I love her dearly, immensely, because she was the one that even though she didn't understand a lot of what I was going through, she was the one that stood by me. She was the one that would stand by me through my addiction. Even when, you know, like a few years ago when I started kind of giving talks, I was dead nervous because nothing had ever prepared me to get up on a stage at a union conference or a book thing in front of however many people. And so I'd always ring her and I'd say, Mom, I'm just about to go on stage. And she'd say, just shut the fuck up and get on the stage and stop being silly. You can do anything you want to do. And she had no concept of getting on a stage. She got me through that. She would get me onto the stage. So in a way, a lot of this house is all about, I pictured her kind of being here and I don't smoke, but I've got, I bought her loads of ashtrays. So she could have <laughs> I pictured her here kind of smoking and, and getting a tan and trying to be happy at the end of her life after what has been for her an incredibly difficult life. Let's talk about your hero's heroines. Who is the first person that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen this particular okay. person? First of all, I find it really difficult to think about one person. And I think essentially I come from a time of collectivism. I believe in the, the power of the collective. And when I thought about this, I honestly tried to search for one person and often I found a theme and then I found a person. So the first theme or the first set of people are all the people that died from AIDS-defining illnesses before there was medication. Because bar none, they all will have died horrible deaths in a time when people were utterly stigmatised, when newspaper headlines said, ship them off, shoot them, when homophobia was rife, before transphobia was even transphobia. My first set of heroes is all those people that died pre-drugs, all those people that knew, and sometimes they were people that had just come down to London they were people that had just come down. It was their first night out. They'd gone to heaven. And that night, they met someone that they thought they would fall in love with and be with forever. And that night, they contracted HIV. Like you, I lived through the whole of this AIDS pandemic. Therefore, in the beginning, most people that were diagnosed were diagnosed because they had full-blown AIDS. You didn't go and have a test. But I thought what I'd do is, because although I find it difficult to talk about one person as being a hero in terms of that because I think anyone that survived or lived with HIV or AIDS in that period of time before drugs was living with something which was truly terrifying but I think I can if I'm okay because in, in my book I have written a whole chapter about my friend Simon who died very early on but was also the first person that allowed me to kind of like find my queen and so if I can I just wanted to read out a few really short bits from the book and it's in no way is this book promotion I have to say that these aren't me picking best paragraphs or anything at all these are me just wanting to explain about this person called Simon he was the most beautiful and brave person I've ever known even to this day most days I talk to him just chit chat and the 1980s version of him eyeliner orange mohair jumper torn Levi's and faded striped espadrilles talks back 
He still makes me smile and laugh and feel that I have the capacity to be beautiful. He was the epitome of cool, blending punk, new romantic with a Californian ascetic before Kate Moss was Kate Moss. He had one blue eye, one brown, which made him look a bit like David Bowie and he danced like Grace Jones. And he truly was the most brave, but even when we were in the sixth and we'd get ready and go to the Camden Palace on a Friday night, I think it was. And he just held femininity and queerness and all of that it was such strength that it made all of us around him who were all struggling to come out or to feel okay being different or to feel okay liking Bowie. I mean, people now think that everyone liked Bowie, but back then, if you said you liked Bowie, people would go, you're poof. Music denoted your level of masculinity or normality in relation to what society wanted. But he didn't care. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He just made all of us around him braver. And we lost him. We lost him like we lost Derek Jarman, like we lost Felix Gonzalez Torres, like we lost Oscar Moore. You know, we lost this whole set of people that would have just given so much to this world. It was really weird. I was going to read this last bit. My friend and erstwhile lover, because we were lovers in the sixth one, he was the first person that made me feel completely undirty, which you did feel at that point in time about having any kind of same sex, sex. My friend and erstwhile lover Simon often talked in great detail about how he would live his life on his own terms and not to please anyone else. He'd travel to New York, work in fashion or music. He'd live in a loft with a succession of handsome lovers. He'd never settle down with one person, not like his parents, he'd say. And the thing is, is that all of that seems really normal now to say, but it wasn't then. He was a working class, Lad who had these really, he had much older parents that were, his dad, I remember, would wear like a suit and tie all the time because people did then like a suit and a shirt and a tie. And if his dad let his hair down, he'd take his tie off and roll it up and put it in his pocket. And that was letting his hair down. So Simon came out of that and he came out of that fabulously like a bolt of light. He brought wonderfulness and art and creativity and bravery to all of our lives. And I would say that none of us could wear orange mohair like he did, but we all tried. We'd all go to Kensington Market and we'd all buy electric blue or orange mohair or bright yellow mohair. And we'd all try and wear it. And we'd all look a bit pale compared to him. But he got us to try and that's never left me. There were those people who they burnt so brightly. I knew several people like that, too, who died far too young at a time when there wasn't effective treatment. You mentioned Derek Jarman. I became good friends with Derek. I was rereading his books. He's in my memoir that's coming out next year and I wanted to get it right. So I was checking some stories in his memoirs because I appear there a couple of times. One of the great sadnesses about that was that it was so close to the time when everything changed. He, he died just like two years before, I think. If he could have held on a bit longer, all those people that we wouldn't have lost. Yeah, 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 you know? absolutely. And it's really difficult for people to kind of get a handle on it now. But when you were there, it wasn't one person that you lost or two people or three people. It was half of your friendship group. Yeah. And invariably, they all died horribly. They died really difficult deaths. 
I'm in Spain at the moment. I've transferred my care to Spain, but during COVID, I didn't have great HIV care and I let everything slip. So I ended up becoming detectable and my HIV not doing very well and my medication becoming ineffective. And, I, and CMV showed up for the first time. CMV I've not heard about since the late 80s, early 90s. Can you explain what that is for people who won't know? It was the virus that used to really do real damage. Right. It was the virus that would get in and it would make people would often have CMV retinitis, which would make people go blind. It's what made, you know, Oscar Moore go blind. It would cause dementia. It would get into the brain and cause dementia. It would get into the stomach and cause a really foul sort of gastroenteritis that would just really knock people out very quickly. Yeah. And obviously it's not the same now for me. It's not the same. But back then, now I go, oh, it's CMV, it's fine. We'll improve my meds. But if this had been... 20 years ago or, or 30 years ago, and that would have been it. I would have been counting down the days. If you read Oscar Moore's memoir, you literally have, it's like a diary. You literally have a kind of build-up to his end of days, at which point he can't see anymore. Someone has to, you know, type up his recording for his last piece. You know, when I saw Simon, the last time I saw him, I'm just reading at the very last line of this, the last time I saw him, was in heaven and and we didn't see each other for a few years. I thought he'd literally gone off to America. I thought he was living in a loft, being fabulous. He was beautiful. I thought he was living in a loft, being beautiful and being brave, but he wasn't. He was dying of AIDS. And so I didn't see him for a few years. And then I saw him in heaven over the other side of the bar. And I wanted to ignore him because AIDS was terrifying to us then. AIDS terrified us because there was no cure for it. It just killed people. And there he was, and he had a cap on it, but it was obviously he'd lost most of his hair and his face was really... Anyway, I saw him and I tried to ignore him, but then we saw each other and we hugged and we kissed because we'd been lovers. And I wanted to kiss him and I felt like if our tongues stayed entwined that he wouldn't slip away. As we parted, he whispered in my ear, it was worth it. And I replied, not if I lose you. And the thing is about his line, it was worth it, was like Derek Jarman's garden, was like the artwork of Felix Gonzalez Torres, was like the, the last words of Oscar Moore. They were gifts, in, even when they were being stigmatized and treated appallingly by society. They tried to leave us something. And I kind of have dedicated my life to us learning <laughs> about what it was they left us. How is it that some, how was it he said to me, as we parted, we would never see each other again after that moment, because he died very shortly after it. But he left me with, it was worth it. And really in saying that, he was saying, don't worry about it. I'm, it was worth it. I had a good time. And so to me, it's that you can't get a more heroic line than that. You can't you get can. more heroic than Derek Jarman's Prospect Cottage, I think, the garden there, as a gift, as a gift. And also as a metaphor, the fact that when he was really ill and having trouble getting around that he chose to create life in the form of a garden out of shingle it was such a powerful metaphor for his raging against the dying of the light yeah, wasn't it yeah, it really yeah, yeah. was at, at, at that point to make that kind of statement which is about growth and which is about longevity 
which is about, you know, even the stuff he planted, he didn't plant stuff that, he didn't plant stuff that was just going to, was going to die off very quickly. He planted stuff that was there for the, for the kind of long term. And I think that's the same as, you know, that line of his, of my friend Simon's, has stayed with me. And honestly, I talk to him most days, not because I'm holding on to the past, because I feel like I'm 58 and at one point I'll disappear. But he maybe won't disappear because he's a chapter in my book. But I, there's a lesson to be learned from that spirit of generosity. I only hope that I can be as generous as that. I kind of have dedicated my life to us learning <laughs> about what it was they left us. People that died of AIDS and of AIDS divining illnesses, they were often so young that they were just on the cusp of life. And they kind of had to accept that they weren't going to see any of it at all. And when people talk to me about, sometimes people say to me, oh, you look tired. And I go, well, that's because I'm old <laughs> and I am tired. And I, if, I'm, if I am tired, I should look tired. Because it's like a sin now to look older or to be whatever. And I, every line on my face, and I don't mean this in any crap way, every line, every aging, every gray hair is for those people that aren't alive because I'm alive and I should age for them so that we can all see what it's like. I get very, very frustrated when I hear gay men, I'm 56, and when I hear gay men my age or even a bit younger complaining about aging, it gets my goat because it's yes. like, hang on a second, you are blessed. I am yeah. lucky to be here. I am so lucky. It was yeah. just sheer, sheer luck of the draw that I'm here. Yeah. We should be proud of aging. We yeah. should be proud of ourselves that we're here and, and we should honor people that didn't have the opportunity to do yeah, yeah. that. This ageism is still rife within the gay male community. It's well, I think, it's, I think it's rife in society. And I think because yeah. of all the things that people can have done now, I mean, I've got, I've got nieces and nephews who worry about aging at 21, but now they can have Botox to stop lines coming at 21. That's so mad. It's like, but I mean, to spend a lifetime being scared of aging and, and scared of death, and maybe in a way, one of the things that being positive for so long has given me, or living with HIV for so long has given, it given me, is that I'm not scared of dying. I, I'm not scared of dying. I say that to my mother a few times. You know, if I die tomorrow, don't cry, because I've had many more good years than I ever imagined I was ever going to get. And I've written books and I've lived in a house that was a, a house I'd read about when I was a kid. It was my sanctuary. It was like a magical place. And I have no fear of death. I've got stuff, I've got books I want to write. I have a fear that I'm not going to get my writing done, but I don't have a fear of death. And in a way that's come from those people. How dare I fear death when they had no choice? How dare I be scared of aging? How dare I be embarrassed about lines on my face or gray hair? I'm yeah. not going to be. I'm going to I'm going to enjoy all of that and I'm going to embrace all of that for them. One of the themes that came up a lot in It's a Sin, the Russell T. Davis drama about the AIDS crisis was the estranged family where the parents would turn up at the hospital, discover their child was gay, discover they had AIDS, discover they were dying all in the same moment. And I certainly witnessed that many times. And yeah found it very difficult, certainly in some cases, to be as accepting and forgiving of the parents, knowing what they had done to these yeah. children. When we look back at that time, we must never forget that. It wasn't just the tabloid newspapers and the politicians. There was often hostility towards us from the very people that should have been looking out for us. Oh, absolutely. One of the things about my and Simon said, I've got no idea where he's buried. There's, there's never been a grave that I can go and visit. And I think for about half of the friends that I know that died, 
I've got no concept of where they were because people just came down, whisked the body away. That would have been difficult then, by the way, because no undertakers wanted to do it. But somehow they whisked the body away and they were so ashamed that they just, I don't know, maybe they were cremated in their ashes. You know, I've got no concept. But that happened. Listen, I remember when I was diagnosed, I remember going to eat with people. I remember going to people's houses and watch them watch the plates I was eating off of the glasses that I was using. I remember going to a house and they gave me like a plastic cup. Everyone else had like a glass and they gave me like a plastic cup. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I can't pick it up. I was so mortified. Yeah, I'm never not gonna be angry about that. I don't know where Simon is. I've got no concept. I know that he's in, he's in me and you know, graves kind of matter. Graves matter because you go and visit them and you, I don't know, I've never been able to cry at his graveside, but it was a person that really shaped my life. And I'm sure that all of the group of friends around him, he gave each one of us a gift of being slightly braver. That's really, really wonderful. Lots of food for thought and ties in with a lot of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately and have also been discussing with other guests. So thank you very much for that. Who is the next person or group of people that you'd like to talk about so the next person is again a group of people but i will slim it down to one or two people and it's all the women that i've kind of encountered be it in fiction or in real life or through their work who made me believe that i was worthy of having a not just a room with a view but a house with a view that i was worthy of beauty that i was worthy of being terrified but still giving it a go. If you were born into my family, you were born into thinking that what you would do would be very slim. You would work, you would try and get away with not, you know, you'd try and work under the counter, you wouldn't career build. The idea of building a career wasn't something that you'd think about doing. You wouldn't have a house, you wouldn't have anywhere that was seemed to be aspirational. But somehow I wanted it. I was a kid that looked over the garden wall and thought, I want what's ever over there. I remember watching Six Million Dollar Man and Farrah Fawcett Majors, who was married to Lee Majors at the time, was in that. And I just remember thinking, I want to be her. I want that. I want to be as free as that. I want to be able to walk down the street and my hair and be free of all of this. So I jumped about California and I jumped about landscapes and I jumped about mountains and, and outside space and so the first person in this group, and the main one really, who really influenced me, is Georgia O'Keeffe. There's a, a couple of great quotes by Georgia O'Keeffe, which really influenced me hugely to believe that I could do this, what I'm doing now, which is effectively I moved to, to Andalusia, to the mountains on my own. And everyone that I knew said, you can't do that, you're queer, you're trans, you're HIV, you know, you can't do that. You've got to be near Dean Street, you've got to be near Soho, because that's where your world is. George O'Keefe said this brilliant thing. She said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing that I wanted to do. Now, I can't claim that. I've been terrified and it stopped me from doing everything sometimes. It just enabled me to be in a crack house doing crack or, or heroin. That's what it enabled me to do. But I kept coming back to that and also to this thing that George O'Keefe had said, which was that she wanted to learn to paint landscapes and that the only way to do that was to be in them and to feel small in front of mountains. The other person that kind of comes into this, and this is a bit of a weird one really, is um, Julia Roberts <laughs> playing Liz Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love. Now, 
it's not Liz Gilbert's story. It's Julia Roberts playing Liz Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love, which I first saw when I was still a junkie, still doing drugs. And I remember watching it thinking it was all effortless. Somehow she moved from country to country, eating a bit of Italian, learning Italian, blending with an Italian family. And I thought, I know that I'm sitting here now and I'm on a heroin and I'm on crack cocaine and I'm on the streets a lot of the time doing what I need to do to feed my habit. But I think I can be Julia Roberts. Like I thought I could be Farrah Fawcett Mayors in, in California. They were always my kind of points of like, I think I'm worthy of more than this. I know it doesn't seem like it at the moment, and there was one point in my life, and I think I write about it in the books, when I just done a punter in a phone box in Houston and someone spat at me. They spat at me through the window. And as a spit trip down, I just thought, you know what, I'm better than this. I'm going to do more than this. And that's no shade to anyone that engages in sex work at all. But what I was doing wasn't sex work. I was just selling everything and anything for drug money. So I always had in my heart that I could do this. And now when I walk around my house in... Andalusia, and it's beautiful. Every room is beautiful. I go, I did it. I just believed in that, in that model of that, that women could do what they wanted to do without fear. This house in the middle of nowhere, in a land that I never knew, I didn't speak a word of Spanish when I came here. I sat for two years in blissful, imposed silence. When I first came here, I just had this complete stillness and silence. And that came from a set of women that said, you can do it, you can make great art. I didn't used to believe, even when I wrote my first books, I didn't believe I was a writer. I certainly didn't believe I was a good writer, but somehow this whole experience has made me realize and think that actually, I think I'm an important writer. And I never would have believed that ever about myself. I never would have said it to you. I wouldn't have said it. I wouldn't have said it to you because I think you're a great writer. So I would have been really mortified and think, oh, people will judge me. But like, I do believe it now. I've been so terrified about not believing it that I realized that when I wasn't terrified about believing it, I'd properly read my work and go, you can do this. My second set of heroes are all the women that said, you can do it, even if they were fictional. And I get that Julia Roberts was a character and I get all of that. But that didn't matter to me because when I was sat there using drugs, when I was sat there injecting, smoking with a crack pipe, when I was doing all that stuff, I just needed someone that was so different from where I was to believe in. And Julia Roberts in Eat, Pray, Love, for all of the kind of privileged stupidity of it I believed in it and I believed that it could be me and here I am 20 odd years later in my 50s having the time of my life I just want to say for the record I mean you are a terrific writer and your previous book Trans Power was on our shortlist for the Polari Prize and I approached your new book with so much expectation but I really think this book is just such a huge step up for you I think it's an yeah. extraordinary book it's so brave and unflinching and beautifully written and despite all of the trauma and the hardship that you talk about you have such a wonderful sense of the absurd even in the darkest moments I did end up in a in a place that was a bit like a hospice really and to be fair, everyone that else that was in there, apart from me, I was very ill, but everyone else that was in there was dying. But I remember on a Saturday night, 
I mean, it was a party. These were people that were young. They had every right to party. They had every right to smoke weed or to drink or to dance or to, and it was, every room was like, every room spilled out into this shared communal sitting room. Out of every room came laughter. I'm now picturing Julia Roberts in A Pretty Woman, thinking of you in those boots. Surprisingly, I never really wanted to be her in those boots because I was never that classy. I mean, I admit that I'm accepting that my, my thinking, I can be Julia Roberts and eat, pray, love, is so specific. But when she goes to Italy, I go, God, I didn't know anyone could do that. She's gone to Italy and she's learning Italian by eating spaghetti. Okay, so we've just got time for your your third nomination. And so my third one, and this one isn't named to a single person. My third one is to all long term survivors. What of stigma? What have we survived these past 30, for some people, almost 40 years now? Stigma constant stigma being told that no one should touch you that you should keep your blood inside you that you're toxic that you shouldn't be part of this world you're not worthy of love when I moved here I stopped living inside a a bubble and I I by the way I loved that bubble I loved my queer bubble (laughs) but when I moved here I stopped living inside of that so people would say things to me like when they found out that I was HIV positive they would go oh it's a shame that no one would ever be with you isn't it because that's what the world still thinks outside of our bubble. They still think that we've got this disease that, that should be, that we should be shipped off somewhere. There's still enormous amounts of people that think that we should be criminalized. This year I became detectable. And there'll be lots of people because of COVID who will have become detectable. And people in Ukraine who can't get medication at the moment who will become detectable. And there are lots of people around the world for whom medication isn't free for whom being undetectable is a dream. And I don't want to bang on about it, but I think in a way we we imagine in our bubbles, in our bubbles, it's a really successful strategy to say to a bunch of people that might be positive or know you're positive, I'm undetectable, therefore you can kiss me or we can be intimate. But outside of that, there are a bunch of people that will go, how do I know you're undetectable? How can I trust you? If you're the kind of person that gets that in the first place how can I ever trust you prove to me that you're undetectable just recently I've changed my care my HIV care to Spain and when I went to see the doctors they said to me have you had syphilis I said why are you asking because recently I wrote a book have you had syphilis it's like really are you going to drag me back there I kind of exploded because of all the pent-up stigma and I said to one like you have to take a translator with you. If it's a legal hospital appointment, you have to take a translator. And I said, translate this word for word. Yes, I've had syphilis too many times to remember. And every other venereal disease you can think of. And crabs so many times, I thought that they were just gonna live on me. And yes, I was a sex worker and yes, I did drugs. But you know what? That was 20 years ago. Now I write books and that's what defines me. So like my big heroes, all of us who've lived with the stigma of HIV and it's never ever gone away it still is a disease whose name you dare not speak loads of people globally live in countries where the shame of HIV means that they can't go and get HIV medication so they die of AIDS because of the shame of HIV until they're free from stigma it's just here waiting to bite us when you're speaking there about stigma and the effects of it it always reminds me of ACT UP and the 
slogan, silence equals death. It's so true in so many ways. Silence does kill. If people are stigmatized to the point where they aren't able to disclose or get treatment, then that's a very direct causal link. Every time I go to the dentist, I have the fear of God in me because there was a certain number of years I lived with this when people said you had to disclose, otherwise you'd end up being criminalized. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the silence equals death is the most pertinent of all kind of sayings or statements that came out of that time. And it's one of the reasons why I, as a person, I don't, I still will speak my truth. That's why I've spoken about my body and about the stuff I've done in such kind of brutal honesty, really, because I feel like I can, that I dedicate all of this, all of this wonderful podcast to all long-term survivors and to the women that, that enabled me to think I could go it alone and also to the people that died before their time and so many of them left as art and beauty and stunning nuggets of joy so please keep speaking your truth please keep writing your truth and please keep being you because you are a hero in my eyes thank you more power to you Thank you. That almost made me cry. I really seldom cry. I like that. That almost, you, you know, the thing is, is that we share such a history. We go back and we understand we can have joy and jokes and whatever, but we also get it. So we understand. You understand my life. You understand the journey. I'm sure this will be edited out because I'm just rambling. But, you know, for me to have got to this house and for you to have just called me a hero, that's more than I ever imagined would ever happen in my life. So thank you well thank you juno it's been a real pleasure talking to you i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you and thank you for this series of podcasts honestly pleasure. i'm not just saying it because i'm on it it's been one of the most enjoyable podcasts i've listened to my thanks to juno for being such a great guest and you can find out more about her and her work by following her on twitter or instagram at ages badly coming up soon on we can be heroes the main ones I've chosen to talk about today are a fictional character uh, and a writer and a musician. I think they all walk a very interesting line between being very serious people in their intent and also being very humorous people. I didn't kind of really realise that until I started thinking about them. I thought, oh yeah, actually, this fictional character is in many ways rather similar to this well-known rock musician. I can remember not just the comedy sketch that he did which is very important but also the actual performance of a song so peculiar because it, again it walks this tightrope between being slightly strange and artistic and being slightly silly he's kind of he was leaning right back and banging his leg into the ground yeah. in this bizarre angular way and then in between bits doing strange jazz hands I mean <laughs> just weird and I was absolutely mesmerized this has been we can be heroes with me Paul Burstyn Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.